The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know, but doesn't have time to tell you. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults. From latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. How's it going, Lindsay? Good. How are you? Good. Welcome back to another episode. Yeah, today we have a good topic, and this one is based on an email. We had somebody um, send in a question about lab interpretation. I think it's a good, timely topic because a lot more people now are getting their results on their electronic medical records or electronic charts, and so um, I think that results in a lot of questions. So we'll go through kind of basic lab interpretation. Right, and I think if you went back to probably our first or second episode, we talked a lot about what's being done for annual exams these days. And really, um, unless you're on certain medications or have certain chronic medical diseases that we're following, we wouldn't get these on a regular basis unless you had symptoms or concerns that made us want to get these labs drawn. Right, yep. So... Um, if you're healthy and not on medications, you're probably not going to need most of these on a routine basis. Once in a while, we will do screening for glucose or cholesterol. Um, and again, if you're having symptoms, then certainly we order appropriate labs for that. But otherwise, you may not be getting routine labs. For those of you who are on medications that require regular lab draw, we can kind of do an overview today on what your labs mean. And of course, if you have detailed questions, always ask your physician. Right. So I guess we'll start. There's um, some basic chem panels, we call them, or basic metabolic panels. Chem 6 um, is a common panel. one. Yeah. yeah. Is a common lab that is drawn. And so we'll quick kind of go through the um, main pieces of, of that. So the first thing would be a glucose that's on there. Yeah. And glucose just measures the sugar in your blood. So exactly that, just glucose in your blood. Um, for most people, if you're fasting, that number will be under 100. If you're fasting and you're pre-diabetic, it'll be between 100 and 125. And if you're diabetic, it may be above 125. During the daytime, that number can vary depending on when you ate last um, and if you're fasting and things like that. If it's ever over 200, that is diagnostic for diabetes if you don't already carry that diagnosis. Right. So that's that one's pretty straightforward, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Um, the next would be a sodium level, which does just that. It it um, monitors the sodium in our blood, which sodium has a lot of roles in our body. Um, certainly is just part of our, our saline portion or plasma portion of our blood, uh, but it helps regulate uh, muscles and lots of movement of uh, molecules between cells in our body. Right, and it's a positively charged electrolyte, which we will talk about, so a few other electrolytes, sodium, potassium, chloride, and bicarbonate. Sodium is positively charged. They all move differently through cells and through different transporters to help regulate pH in the blood, and our bodies do a really good job of maintaining a pH right around 7.4, and so 
Um, we'll talk about just kind of in briefly, you know, you may, you can know that sodium has a positive charge to it. So there's times when sodium can be high and that would be times maybe when you're dehydrated or if you have issues with high blood sugars. Right. So an interesting thing about sodium, I think a lot of people may think that eating a lot of salt is going to raise the sodium level or being low on salt is going to lower it. And that's not really the case. The sodium in our blood uh, usually maintains kind of a fairly steady level. And what changes is the water volume in our blood. So sodium is either more dilute or more concentrated depending on what the water is doing. And so if you're dehydrated, your sodium is going to be more concentrated and that means your sodium may be high. And if you are uh, volume overloaded, we call it, such as in heart failure or some other conditions, then your sodium may be low because of that. And there's some lots, actually, medications that can cause low sodium levels. Um, and then we can have a syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, which also causes low sodium levels. And low sodium can cause you to feel badly and it can cause, uh, you know, from the start, you maybe feel fatigue, nausea, headaches, um, all the way to being low enough, fast enough, comas and, and death. Yeah, so it's, it's fairly important. Uh, those dramatic changes don't usually happen unless there's something major going on health-wise. So uh, people with a brain injury may see major fluctuations in sodium. Um, again, certain medications can do that. And if people aren't being watched closely, those medications can result in a really low sodium. And then there's a syndrome where people just tend to drink too much water and that can lower sodium levels as well to usually not dangerously low levels, but once in a while we see that. Next would be potassium. And potassium is another positively charged electrolyte. Potassium does more movement in and out of cells depending on what the pH is doing locally. So it responds to if somebody's acidic, if the blood is acidic, it's going to move into the cells. And if they're not, it might move out of cells. Um, but potassium levels also fluctuate depending on our potassium intake. Right. And again, lots of medications can affect our potassium levels. And certainly diarrhea or vomiting uh, can cause fluctuations in levels. Things that make you urinate a lot can also reduce potassium. So again, medications, but similarly high glucose might make you go to the bathroom a lot. And that can cause a drop in potassium because it goes out in the urine. Potassium, we use it for um, energy, muscle energy, mostly, I would say. Yeah. And if people aren't getting an adequate amount of potassium in the diet and they're on medications that reduce potassium levels, then we do often um, supplement with pills, potassium pills that help maintain appropriate potassium levels. It is important for heart function, muscle function, so it is necessary to maintain good levels of potassium. Okay, so next up um, we have on the list is chloride. And chloride is a negatively charged electrolyte. It helps maintain electrical neutrality as well by moving in and out of cells, so kind of like sodium and potassium. Um, when I'm looking at labs, chloride doesn't generally mean terribly much to me. Right. I mean, if you're trying to calculate acid-base disorders for acutely ill person in the hospital, that's, that's when it becomes more of an important exactly. thing to monitor. Exactly. So not something if you're generally well and in the outpatient setting, a mildly high or mildly low chloride level doesn't really, um, 
it's not terribly meaningful. Right. Chloride is not something that we usually uh, administer by itself to people, but it will be in various things, as you've probably heard of sodium chloride, which is salt, uh, potassium chloride. So some mm-hmm. potassium pills will have some chloride in it, but we're not usually treating chloride levels. Usually it's the other component of it that we are trying to treat. Right. And then there's the important um, CO2 or carbon dioxide or bicarbonate levels. Right. And so CO2 is actually a measure of bicarbonate and carbonic acid in the blood, but most of that is in the form of bicarbonate, so we just think of it as bicarbonate. And again, this is a negatively charged um, component of the blood. It is important in acid-base status, yep, and so it helps control the pH of the blood, and there are a few systems that work on acid base in the body. And again, when I'm saying acid base, I'm just talking about maintaining that blood pH or that balance of 7.4. And the two systems that affect that are the kidneys and the lungs. And so bicarbonate can mean different things depending on if it's low or high and depending on what system is involved. Right. So it's also one of those things we we monitor and do lots of calculations for hospitalized patients who are very acutely ill, um, if they're on a ventilating breathing machine. Um, we monitor and calculate different things from that to make sure we get the right um, right settings. Yeah, right settings mm-hmm. on the the ventilator. Um, sometimes you can see it elevated in in a somebody who's a chronic smoker with severe COPD, you might see that creeping up, um, or somebody with obstructive sleep apnea. Yeah. Um, those would be the times in an outpatient setting that you you might pay attention to that and, and notice that somebody's, we would say, retaining more CO2 because their breathing is getting worse. Right, and so those would be the, the pulmonary causes of a high CO2 And then the other ones we call metabolic, which would be like dehydration, some other syndromes related to the adrenal glands. Again, these are more uncommon things that we don't generally worry about too much in the outpatient setting unless there are other symptoms or other things going on. And then a low CO2 tends to be, again, related to metabolic things that are happening. So when people have severe uncontrolled diabetes, such as diabetic ketoacidosis, that can cause a low CO2 Kidney failure, diarrhea can also cause low CO2. So there are different things that we look at. And again, in the clinical setting, if it's mildly high or mildly below the normal range, I don't get too excited about it unless somebody is having specific symptoms to make me think about one of these things. And then next up would be BUN, the bun, or the blood urea nitrogen levels. And blood urea nitrogen is a waste product from that the kidneys make when they're filtering and cleaning out your blood. So your kidneys kind of clear the blood of of waste and, and BUN is a waste product. Right. So when protein's broken down into its components, that's when urea is urea is a byproduct of that. And generally that process is happening kind of at steady levels um, during during just normal uh, physical activity, normal rest, it that kind of happens at steady levels. And the kidneys filter out the urea. And so in general, there are stable levels of blood urea nitrogen. So it can tell us a lot about kidney function, about dehydration. There are some other kind of random times you can see an elevated BUN when somebody is on a high prednisone um, intake. 
or steroid use or if um, they actually there it's elevated sometimes in, in gastrointestinal bleeds mm-hmm. which would be some other times you might note that otherwise it's it's how we monitor kidney function right and I would say it's a very common thing to see mildly elevated on routine labs and I think this right. is because when people go in for labs they're often fasting you maybe haven't had a lot to drink yet in the morning and so the BUN is usually a little high and um, I will have people email me and ask me about that, and most of the time it is not concerning whatsoever. Right. So if you have a mildly elevated BUN, it is not a worrisome thing whatsoever. Another measure of kidney function that we look at together with the BUN would be the creatinine, or it's all often listed as CR. And that's yeah. also a waste product from breakdown of proteins or muscles. Yeah, and again, creatinine is produced at a steady rate most of the time, and then it's filtered by the kidneys. So it kind of is a surrogate measure of how well the kidneys are working. It doesn't directly measure kidney function, but we use it to estimate how well the kidneys are working and how well they're removing things that they're supposed to remove. And we know different calculations between ratios of BUN and creatinine, and that's that's some information that we take with us when we go forward thinking about your kidney function and medications that we're giving you. Um, and so it helps us dose medications. It helps us understand if you're dehydrated. Different levels of creatinine can be, I mean, if a bodybuilder, a very strong muscular bodybuilder is going to have higher levels of creatinine um, than somebody who's very thin and, and doesn't have a lot of muscle mass. Right. And in general, for looking at creatinine lower is better, but that again can vary depending on the size of somebody and their muscle mass. So like Lindsay said, a bodybuilder would have a higher creatinine um, and that doesn't mean their kidney function is abnormal. It's just because of their increased muscle mass that they have a higher level. Um, But then also if somebody in kidney failure would have a higher level of creatinine, patients on dialysis, we will see higher levels of creatinine. So that is something that we do pay close attention to. And, um, Again, there are different calculations to look at, to convert creatinine to a filtration rate, which you might see on the labs as an eGFR or estimated GFR, which is glomerular filtration rate. And that's a big way of saying just how quickly the kidneys are filtering things. So again, depending on various things such as water intake, muscle mass, things like that, that number can vary Um And we'll see it fluctuate a little bit from day to day. And this is one that often in an older adult, so when you're between 60 and 90, 100, that number can often be um, out of range in an abnormal range. That doesn't mean a whole lot to you other than the fact that we'll monitor it. And we don't want to do things to damage your kidneys at that point. You don't want to be taking a whole bunch of um, NSAIDs, so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications from over-the-counter. We want to be dosing your medications right. But there's a huge percentage of, of people from the age of 60 to 100 that have abnormal um, GFRs or creatinines that doesn't mean that they're going to have kidney failure or complications from their kidneys. It means that we watch that and we do everything we can to not damage our kidneys. So we drink plenty of water every day and we avoid medications that could be damaging. But it's kind of a something that is not normal for aging, but it's very common and not necessarily harmful 
Right. But yeah, something we follow. You may see that your, you know, your doctor may tell you that you have stage three kidney disease. And often that's the first time people hear about that reduced right. GFR or that lower GFR level. Um, but the reason is because it's kind of a funny classification where people with stage one kidney disease are predisposed to it or may have an injury but have normal kidney function. Stage two is when that GFR is between 60 and 90, and many of our labs don't necessarily measure that number. Um, Stage three is when it's below 60, and so that might be the first time your clinician sees that that it's actually a little below normal. And again, as Lindsay said, as long as it's not dropping off, as long as it's something that's kind of just chronically slowing down over time, we don't get too worried about it. It is kind of due to wear and tear on the body, and so so we just try to minimize that damage. We'll monitor, and it, like I said, most people live there in a steady state um, and die of other causes, nothing to do with their kidneys. And it's a very small population of people who actually, you know, go on to have kidney issues for, for whatever other reason. Right. And certainly, if we see that, you know, that EGFR or creatinine changing quickly or in a concerning way, then we would send somebody on to a specialist, a nephrologist who would look into it more and figure out why it's changing and what we need to do to maintain. Calcium was the other one. Oh, yes, calcium. Right, so obviously that's a a mineral in our body that also helps with heart function and muscle function, nerve function, blood clotting, bones. So it's very important and can have dangerous implications if it's high or low. Um, and and tip us off to several um, conditions. So I would say the most common, if you're slightly high, it has to do with medications. Mm-hmm. Um, or probably the most common cause of an elevated calcium level, a slightly elevated calcium level, would be primary hyperparathyroidism. And that's something that your doctor can test for. If you have consistently elevated calcium levels, then it's another blood test to see if the parathyroid hormone is elevated. The normal ranges for labs are like a standard deviation. So a, the, a group of normal people monitored and a standard deviation one side or the other. But some normal people are just slightly outside of that range and it doesn't mean much. Um, so I don't think I ever get too excited about a calcium level unless it's probably a whole one point above the the high normal level. So in our lab, that's something like 11.4 or something like that. Right. Yep. Yep. There definitely are um, slight variations in what's normal. And then as you, I think, alluded to already, medications can cause high or low calcium depending on which medications we're looking at. And diuretics are a big mm -hmm. one. Yep. Bisphosphonates can reduce calcium in the blood a little bit. Um, and the diet, of course, is a factor with calcium, too. Some s- symptoms of hypercalcemia would be um, kidney stones. Constipation is often caused by high calcium levels. Even changes in mood sometimes can right. occur as calcium levels get high. Bone pain is another right. symptom that, again, this is when we're talking about significant elevations in calcium. Um, we can get tipped off to some cancers or blood um, malignancies like multiple myeloma or other 
malignancies can cause high calcium levels that are very outside the range. So that would trigger you to to look further into those things. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the most common cause of high calcium levels is calcium supplementation, which people have been doing kind of in the last several years, you know, to help with bone mass and bone density. And we've talked about this in other episodes too. There isn't great research showing lowered fracture risk with calcium supplementation. So the best way to get calcium is just through your diet. And if you're taking high doses of vitamin D, that can also affect your calcium levels. So you want to make sure you're doing a, a recommended amount of vitamin D. Right. So lots of things can affect each of these labs. And if you have questions, certainly talk with your clinician about it. Um, Hopefully this gives you just a general overview. I think next in the chemistry panel, we can talk about liver tests. So I think we can start with the AST and ALT, and I'm going to lump them together because both are enzymes found in liver cells. And these levels can be high when there's damage to the liver cells, causing them to be released into the blood. Yeah, so lots of, uh, um, you know, if you had hepatitis for any reason, so infection of the liver, um, these would be elevated. And if you had, you know, a poisoning from alcohol use or from Tylenol or acetaminophen use, you would see elevations in these. Sometimes just a regular viral infections can cause a little bit of liver, liver damage for these to be elevated. Um, and we also look at them in other, you know, sometimes we can see them elevated when the gallbladder is causing problems as well. Right. And so depending on, you know, we'll look at the ratio. If the AST is really high compared to the ALT, that often indicates that alcohol is a factor in the damage Mm -hmm. that's occurring. If it's the other way around, then we tend to think more of those viral or infectious or other acute hepatitis um, causes. Then there's the alkaline phosphatase, which also is a liver um, test of enzymes found in the liver. It also can be um, excreted from bones when bones are breaking down. So, um, but typically we see it in in liver when the gallbladder is um, inflamed. So things obstructing outflow from the liver tend to elevate the alkaline phosphatase. And so again, when there's a gallbladder stone creating an obstruction, that will cause an elevation in alkaline phosphatase or any, anything else, scarring can sometimes do that too, will cause elevations in alkaline phosphatase. When, as Lindsay said, sometimes that's also, it can also come from bone and other tissue. So when it's significantly elevated and we don't have a good explanation, then there's a lab test that can be done to break down its components and see where that alkaline phosphatase is coming from. If it's actually coming from the liver or if it appears to be coming from bone, and that can provide us cues as to what we need to look for next. Right. Then often with the liver function test, we look at bilirubin levels, and that's um, a waste product by the liver. Um, that comes from the breakdown of red blood cells. Right, and the liver's job is to conjugate bilirubin as it releases it. And so depending on, there are two different types of bilirubin that we'll see conjugated and unconjugated, that can kind of help us determine where this breakdown is occurring or where the problem is in the cycle. And I know this is a lot of complicated information, but basically we use it as a guide to look for liver damage. So that probably gets the complete metabolic panel or the chem 6, 7, chem 10, with chem the, 10 with whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, 
I think the next most common blood draw that is done is for blood count. So the complete blood count, the CBC, which gives us lots of information. Um, Yeah, and we don't necessarily have to go into detail on all of the components of a CBC today, but we'll certainly talk about kind of the major things. Um, Starting with the white blood cell count, that's usually given first when you get a CBC done. And this is looking at the cells that help fight infection. Um, and it's, there are actually several different types of cells that the lab will kind of split it out and show us which types of cells and um, have what numbers. And it can help us uh, determine, you know, if there's anything concerning happening. Yeah, so the different types of white blood cells are known to fight different kind of infections. So neutrophils are typically the white cells that would be elevated in a bacterial infection. Um And then if you have lots of allergy issues, then you might see the eosinophils elevated. Um, And then with viral infections, you might see more lymphocytes. And then there's the blood um, cancers like leukemia when you would see other other cells elevated. Right. And then the blood counts can also be reduced. So the white blood cell count may be lower than normal. And that, you know, I I have some patients who have chronically mildly low white blood cell counts, which are not concerning. Um, They've been evaluated and it's just the way their body is. Again, that standard deviation, they're just kind of on the lower end of that. But as long as they're not having more infections or other issues, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. On the other hand, it can be worrisome and may need evaluation too. So um, typically... You know, if we see that white blood cells are elevated, and sometimes you t- we'll talk about a left shift. So if you have a high WBC and a left shift, then that's more indicative of a bacterial infection. Mm-hmm. Some severe bacterial infections can cause low WBC as well. So it's, right. it can be counterintuitive. And then, of course, things like chemotherapy, um, other severe infections, HIV and AIDS can cause reduced counts. If you're if you got a steroid injection or prednisone, um, you're taking prednisone for some reason, then the white blood cells can be elevated as well, just from that medication. Right. So most commonly, when we see a change in white blood cell count, it's a temporary thing related to infection. Usually, if we recheck it in a few weeks, it'll be back to normal. But certainly, if you have a question or concern, talk with your clinician about it. The other component of the complete blood cell count would be red blood cells. Um, they're erythrocytes that are made in the bone marrow and they're what carry our oxygen throughout our body. Right. So within the red blood cells is hemoglobin and that's what oxygen binds to. So there are a few different components here that are measured in the blood count. There's just the plain RBC, which is a red blood cell count, and that can vary depending on it. Um, what's affecting the lifespan of red blood cells. You know, if you're sick again, if you're bleeding, that number can change. But it's not one that usually is um, the most important thing that I'm looking at when I'm looking at a blood count. Right, I think some of the the biggest things we look for are the white blood cells, the red blood cells, and the platelets. The red blood cells can be broken down into different parts and pieces. And so part of that is the MCV, which is the the volume of the red blood. So so typically a red blood cell is a, a normal shape and size and all of your blood cells are that size. So we get tipped off to um, the 
fact that you might have been anemic, if you have a bunch of variation in that, if, you're try if your bone marrow is trying to put out a bunch of red blood cells, then there can be different sizes and shapes. Or if you uh, have deficiency of some nutrients, yeah. like B12 or folate, then you would see a, a larger MCV. Um, you might see a smaller MCV if you are more iron deficient. And so when you have a low hemoglobin hematocrit number, that's called anemia. And there's lots of different causes of anemia, right? You lost blood from somewhere or your bone marrow isn't making uh, the blood fast enough or adequately. Right. And so we kind of take these things together to help determine the overall picture. So if, if somebody has a low hemoglobin and they have an elevated MCV, then we would look for things like B12 deficiency or folate deficiency. Um, and again, you don't necessarily have to worry about this. We're just trying to provide an overview right. so that <laughs> when you see these numbers, you might know why your clinician is ordering more testing. Um, and then the platelets. Platelets are what uh, help clot our blood and stop us from bleeding. Um, and so they're important in the body. Um, they can be elevated in um, certain bone marrow cancers. Yeah, they can also just be elevated because of inflammation or systemic illness. They're kind of what we call an inflammatory marker. So platelet numbers will increase if there's other inflammation or other stress on the body. Yep. But if they're significantly elevated, then we certainly look at um, things that could be happening in the bone marrow too. And then if they're low... That's often because of medications or also because of bone marrow issues as well. And then, you know, you'd be concerned about being, the ability to clot your blood and to stop from bleeding if you were on the low side. Yeah, and aside from the bone marrow, other things that can lower platelets would be um, heavy alcohol intake and liver damage. Liver disease can both cause low platelet function or low platelet counts. Right, so Those medications the... can affect platelet counts. They can also affect um, other blood counts. And so, you know, certainly PPIs would be one to affect blood counts. I also think of some seizure medications right. um, as affecting blood counts and some others that uh, we use less commonly. But a lot of medications. the medications used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. So that's why rheumatologists are ordering this very regularly. So any medications that are affecting your, your immunity. Right. the main labs I think we'd be ordering on a regular basis. Other things that I think we get asked about a lot are measures of thyroid function. Mm -hmm. And so the main thing we use to measure thyroid function is called a TSH, which is a thyroid stimulating hormone. When we get a low TSH, it actually means you have high thyroid levels. So it's kind of opposite. It's a negative feedback loop. So if you have a low TSH, you have high thyroid levels. If you have a high TSH, you have low thyroid levels. Yeah, and so let's back up for a minute and just talk about where these come from because that might help people understand where this, this weird feedback loop. So the thyroid gland secretes just plain thyroid hormone, and we can measure either T4 or T3, so two different forms of the thyroid hormone. Um, those numbers are okay, but they can fluctuate more and just on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. And so we don't usually use those as the main guide for what a thyroid is doing. 
The TSH comes from the brain. Again, as Lindsay said, it's thyroid stimulating hormone. So that's the brain telling the thyroid gland either we need more or we need less thyroid here. And so when the TSH is high, it's telling the thyroid there's not enough thyroid around. And if it's low, it's saying the opposite. TSH is one that is much more steady, and it takes even six to eight weeks for it to reach kind of a steady state. So it doesn't fluctuate day to day. So that's why we use that to monitor thyroid function in general. And I think people are often wanting to us to order this very specific thyroid test, but that hasn't been found in lots of research to be useful in any way. Um, and that is because it can fluctuate so much day to day. And um, T4 mm-hmm. is the active form of thyroid and T3 turns into T4 um, by various mechanisms in the body. So it just becomes very complicated. And, and the best way to monitor your thyroid levels is through the TSH. Right. And that's what you base if you had low thyroid levels and were treating that with replacement. So a levothyroxine medication to treat hypothyroidism, we base the doses, dosing changes on the TSH. Right. And very rarely somebody will have an abnormal TSH level because something in the brain isn't working where the TSH comes from. And in that situation, then the TSH isn't as helpful. But again, the vast majority of the time, the TSH is the appropriate thing to guide treatment of thyroid. We might have to do a whole show on the thyroid, actually. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot more that we could talk about with the thyroid. I think um, you're right. We we'll could do a whole show on that and just talking about what, what different things can right. affect it. Let's let's plan that for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. All right. Well, how about the A1C? That's another common one that we do. This is the hemoglobin A1C or glycated hemoglobin. And this is something we use to monitor diabetes and also to screen for diabetes. And what it is, is a measure of sugar or glucose built up on the hemoglobin. So hemoglobin and red blood cells have a lifespan of about 90 to 120 days. And so over that time, depending on how much sugar is in your blood, more sugar will build up if there's a lot of sugar in your blood and less so if there's not. So over that time, we can get an estimate of what your blood sugar numbers are doing. Gives us a three-month average, basically, of what your blood sugars have been running. Right. And so it is It is definitely a helpful test. People with normal levels, so on at least on our scales, it's less than 5.7 would be just normal. Between 5.7 and 6.5 is pre-diabe- pre-diabetic and 6.5 is or higher is diagnostic of diabetes. Right. Um, there are a lot of things too that can cause falsely abnormal A1C levels. So because we're measuring hemoglobin, anything that affects the hem- or measuring glucose on hemoglobin, anything that affects that hemoglobin can also affect the A1C level. So if somebody had surgery within the last few months and had bleeding because of the surgery, their A1C is going to be lower because they're making new hemoglobin and new red blood cells. So there isn't as much sugar built up. And so they might come in to see me and we see that A1C and go, wow, that looks really good. And in fact, it's not any better than normal when we look at their glucose readings. It's just that they had surgery and lost some lost some hemoglobin. If you're anemic um, for any reason, then that again plays a part in maybe a not adequate um, reading of an A1C. Or if you had blood transfusion in the last three months. Right. So anything that affects the lifespan of red blood cells 
can um, alter the A1C. And so for many people, we need to see what their blood sugar readings are too, not just what the A1C value is so that we know the two are corresponding with each other and we can determine treatment based on that. Right. Typically, we're checking cholesterol levels at least some point in your life. Um, we should be monitoring to check for elevated cholesterol levels, which put us at risk for heart attack or stroke. And so on your reading, um, there'll be several things. The total cholesterol number, which we like to keep less than 200. Um, and then that cholesterol is broken down into three components. A good cholesterol, or the HDL, which we like to see higher than 40. There's probably some point when it becomes too high, but we don't have a lot of good data on that. So if you had a 60 or a 70, we'd probably call that protective in some way. If you're getting up into the 130s, then maybe that becomes unprotective at some point, but we don't have a lot of good data on that. But that's the HDL and the good cholesterol. Then there's the LDL and the bad cholesterol, um, which we like to be less than 130, right. typically. For, for healthy people, we kind of say less than 130. If you've already had a heart attack or stroke, we really like to see that as low as we can. So, you know, our old threshold used to be below 70. Now we just kind of say on a high-dose cholesterol medication to keep that as low as we really can get it. And again, there we haven't in studies seen a, a downside to really lowering that LDL, but there's questions as to whether or not that could affect nerve function or other things. We don't have definitive answers in that regard at this time. All right, another big component of cholesterol is the triglycerides. Triglycerides can fluctuate. Um, it just kind of depending on what, what, you, you, eat. what you eat. Yep. If you're eating, you know, a high fatty meal or even a high glucose meal, anything that's got a high sugar load can raise triglycerides. So I often say things that raise blood sugar will also usually raise triglycerides, but so will some fats too. We don't typically treat high triglyceride numbers unless they're very high, you know, above 600. Right. Then we might use a special medicine to specifically treat triglycerides over just cholesterol in general. Right. Sometimes people will have, um, inherited conditions, so familial high triglycerides, high levels of triglycerides, and those will be in the thousands and will require treatment. Right. If it's in the low hundreds, we don't like to see that, but we don't necessarily have to use medication for it. Again, triglycerides in the lower hundreds doesn't necessarily correlate with heart attacks and strokes, but as it gets closer to the thousands, then we do worry about blood clots and um, things like that. Pancreatitis. Exactly. Something, yeah. Yeah, and maybe we could do another episode just digging into cholesterol more in another episode, but we'll um, leave it there for today. I think those would be kind of the main blood tests that we'll be monitoring unless we had a really specific symptom or something that we were looking at. And then, But I think that covers kind of our main. Yeah, certainly if there's something that you think of that you're being that's being checked on you on a regular basis and you're not sure what it means or why you can let us know send us an email and we can try to answer that again we won't answer specific health questions we direct you to your clinician for that right so do we have a health pearl for today Lindsay? <laughs> i i have an interesting thing i've been thinking about lately and it's it came from um, somebody I follow on Twitter. So generally I use Twitter. I don't follow anything except for other physicians who post um, 
things about research they're doing or or things like that. So I use it to actually keep up in medicine, which has been very handy, but interesting. Um, and a lady doctor that, that I follow the other day said something that I found really profound for some reason. Um, and she was making the correlation between the heart, so the heart pumps in systole and react, relaxes, is called diastole. And diastole is when the heart fills up. And so she was she was talking a lot about how physicians in general don't ever take all of their vacation time for various reasons, but we're, we're very bad at taking vacation, which I think all of the United States is, in general, any workers in the United States are poor at taking all of their vacation time. And she commented on how we need to take that time, that diastole, that filling time to fill ourselves up so that we can be better at at whatever it is we're doing. So I just thought that was a neat correlation to the heart um, that you can't be pumping and moving forward unless you take that time to relax and fill up. Um, I thought that was a neat metaphor. I like it. That's fantastic. I think, yeah, even if you're not taking a two week long vacation, just, you know, taking a day to go and right. do something relaxing or something that you enjoy to, like you said, fill yourself up, allows you to continue working hard and being productive. Yeah. So I just, I thought that was neat. And, and I had read it when I actually happened to be on vacation, celebrating my mother's uh, 70th birthday, and we were in Colorado and hiking. And that's kind of my my place where I feel like I'm filling up, filling my soul and just rejuvenating. And so I felt like I was in diastole and it was great. <laughs> so find your diastole time and get out there and enjoy it. All right. All right. Well, just to conclude for today, we have some exciting news. We are also now on Spotify. So in addition to finding us on Google Play and Apple Podcasts, you can find us on Spotify if that's where you like to get your podcasts. Please let your friends know if you find this to be beneficial and share it with family and friends. And again, if you have questions, comments, topics you'd like us to talk about, send us an email or let us know. We're at mail at everythingdoc.com or you can go to our website, www.everythingdoc.com. And my husband said when he went to look us up on the um, Spotify that you had to look under our names. Okay, good to know. So that it was easier to find in the search if you looked under Lindsay Dahl or Kirsten Jewell. Good to know. Good information. Yeah, so check it out. Please share us. If you are finding this podcast to be helpful, we'd certainly love some ratings and reviews because um, that certainly helps other people find us as well. And we want to hear about topics. Um, We'll definitely look and bring other uh, specialists to the podcast to give us more information. So what, what are your questions? What do you have for us? Have a great week, everyone, and we'll chat with you again next time. Bye-bye.